Ask Shelly. Ask Shelly. This is the part of the show where you email questions to Shelly that you would never ask her to her face. All right, so let's ask Shelly. It's time once again for Ash Shelley. Ash Shelley is brought to you by... Black Rifle Coffee Company in Virginia Beach is now open. Get more info on Instagram at BRCCHRVA. That's BRCCHRVA. Hey, thanks. Appreciate that. They're coming up on Wednesday, as a matter of fact. Uh, their coffee's terrific. Uh, all right, Ash Shelley, uh, you uh, have questions. She has answers. Let's get right to it. Uh, dear Shelly, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. Why do Dallas Cowboy fans always think it's going to be their year? Sincerely, a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Um, pass. I'm not touching that one. Oh. Pass. Not, that one came no? in late last night. Oh. Pass. Oh, okay. Pass. Right. But <laughs> let me get to the next one. But then. pass. <laughs> dear Shelly, how far did the Titanic travel after hitting the iceberg? Signed, Samuel. At least two and a half miles. That's uh, down to the bottom. It was kind of a southward trajectory at that point. Oh, my. As far as away, someone did calculate using their the time, and their answer was probably no more than five to eight miles maximum, just drifting away from the iceberg. Yeah, yeah, two and a half hours drifting at about two to three knots as the current. Yeah. Now, someone did ask uh, if uh, on one of the message boards I was reading if the iceberg was still out there in the water. The average lifespan of an iceberg in the North Atlantic typically is two to three years from forming to melting. Okay. That means the iceberg that sank the Titanic likely broke off of Greenland in 1910 or 1911 and was gone forever by the end of 1912 or sometime in 1913. So now. I thought that was interesting. That's very interesting. It's not still there. Gone. Not waiting for you. At some point it gets into warm enough waters that... All bets are off. It's going to melt eventually. Uh, Dear Shelly and FM 99 crew, I woke up this morning out of a dead sleep with this question burning in my head. I have no idea why. (laughs) Before the invention of nail clippers, how did humans trim their finger and toenails? Or did they? I'm assuming they did something back in the day. You don't see many paintings or sculptures in museums depicting historical figures with literal daggers protruding from their fingers and toes like a Ripley Believe It or Not candidate or the odd front desk secretary who thinks six-inch fake nails are stylish. Signed, Mike. You know, Mike, this is exactly what Ask Shelley is for. This is good. <laughs> Before the invention of the modern nail clipper, yeah. people would use small knives to trim their nails. Depictions of nail trimming in literature dates back as far as the 8th century B.C. Yeah. A first United States patent for a fingernail clipper was filed in 1875. They also had scissors. It was also common to just grow them and then break them. Just break oh, them, interesting. rip them off, wow. or use oh. sandpaper to file them down. Okay, yeah. I can see running them against a rock or something like that to keep them short. Yep. Yeah. You know, back in the day, because <laughs> they get in the way, and, and they're they're not robust enough. It's not like you're growing claws here. The Book of Deuteronomy yeah. has a line that says uh, that a man, should he wish to take a captive as a wife, shall bring her home to his house, and he shall shave her head and trim her nails. Oh, okay. So that somehow or another makes her yours. Well, we've been, it just proves we've been trimming the L since. Since then. Yeah, yep. since Bible. Yep. Bible, I say. All right, finally, this, dear Shelley. Why are the colors red and green associated with Christmas? I understand orange and black for Halloween, pumpkins, and death 
writes the person just wondering. <laughs> Sincerely, Andrew. Well, there's a book called The Secret Language of Color, and the author went on NPR to talk about this. Okay. She attributes the green and red to two things, right. Holly and Coca-Cola. Holly has played a huge part in this red and green association, she said. It dates back to the winter solstice celebrations with the Russians, uh, with the Russians, the Romans, and maybe beyond. <laughs> yeah. Wrong yep. R there. Uh, also, Holly's associated with the crown of thorns of Jesus and just those beautiful bright red berries and those deep green leaves are the exact colors that we really come to think about when we think of Christmas. And those are the things that are in, well, at least for us, they're in bloom around here. You can go out my backyard and I'll, I can show you these things. Yeah. Right. But it did take a while for red and green to rise to the top, she said. Victorian Christmas cards used a lot of different palettes, red and blue, blue and green, blue and white. They usually put Santa in blue, green green or red robes until 1931 when Coca-Cola hired an artist to create Santa. He was fat and jolly, whereas before create their picture of Santa, Sure, Uh, he was fat and jolly, whereas before he was often thin and elf like he had red robes. And so the fact that all these things came together, this friendly fat Santa with these bright red robes, which I don't think was a coincidence, matched the color of the Coke logo. Yes. It really took hold of American culture and thus... Red and green. Kind of that Norman Rockwell looking. I, I know the Coca-Cola Santa. I, I, I can just see it, you know, with the twinkle and the slightly rosy cheeks. Yep. And the whole, yep. It's it's the version that we all think we know, right? Hey, if you have a question for Shelly, send it to Shelly at FM99.com. It's Ask Shelly. We do it every Monday at right around this time. Thank you so much.